Take your Bibles and turn to Amos chapter 8. You remember, Amos began with God's roar of judgment on eight nations. And then Amos began to deliver three sermons where he was calling God's people to repentance and restoration. This week and next, we end this, or last week and this, we end this not so minor prophet by looking at these five visions. So we looked at three of them last week. These three visions in Amos chapter 7, which prompted Amos not to preach to the people, but to pray to God on their behalf, asking God to relent, to not send the calamity that he showed Amos in these visions. And God relented, and he said, I won't do those things. But now, in these last two visions, God is done with warnings. There are no more calls to repent. He's announcing what to expect. The end is near. Be prepared. First, we see in Amos 1 that God pronounces imminent ruin. And we're going to move real quick through here. We're going to cover two chapters today. So Amos's fourth vision is this vision of, like Ben said, a, a, a basket of ripe fruit. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos, he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, The time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Now there's a play on words right here in the first couple of verses. The Hebrew word for ripe fruit sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for the end. And so Amos is saying, the time is ripe. The end is coming. The nation of Israel is ripe for judgment, and there's no turning back. Reminds me of Jeremiah 8.20. Jeremiah had the same uh, feelings and the same experience as God was about to bring judgment on Judah in the south. And Jeremiah says, the harvest has passed. The summer has ended, and we are not saved. (laughs) I read that last night, and uh, again, as I was looking over all this for this morning, I read that again last night, and I said, Jeremiah 8.20, that's more like Jeremiah 20.20. Is that not a perfect verse for going into September? The harvest has passed, the summer has ended, and we are not saved, right? I mean, all this stuff is still going on. That's kind of how they felt. We We can relate a little bit, I think, this year with some of this. In our Old Testament reading that you heard, Isaiah implied that there are times when God is not near. That there is a time when God may not be found. Which is why Isaiah was imploring God's people to seek the Lord now, while He was near, while He could be found. Don't delay. Following this vision, the rest of Amos 8 tells us some things about this ruin that Israel was facing. And it wasn't a pretty picture. I mean, he talks about wailing and bodies flung everywhere, silence. This wasn't one of those, you know, fiery but peaceful days of judgment. You know, this was was going to be bad. Worship songs were going to become funeral wells. Israel had sowed the seeds of sin and injustice, and they were going to reap a harvest of death and destruction. Bodies would be flung about like stalks of grain. It would be so horrific the people would be left speechless. 
Amos then goes on to explain the reason for this ruin. In verses 4 through 6, God takes a few moments to remind them one last time why they're going to suffer ruin. They had broken God's law. They had forsaken the covenant relationship that the Lord established with them. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales. Buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Selling even the sweepings with the wheat. God spells out three interconnected crimes of which the people of Israel were guilty. The first is they were guilty of disregarding people as inhuman. They disregarded people as inhuman. Now this is the fourth time that God has brought up the unjust treatment of the poor, the downtrodden, and the marginalized in Israelite society. So obviously this is a big deal to God. He takes this very seriously. He says the needy were being trampled on as if they were just the the dust on the road. The poor were being done away with like garbage to be tossed aside and disposed of. This is dehumanizing language. Trampling on, tossing away, disposing of. The poor and the needy were simply in the way. They were in the way of their parties and their pleasures. They were in the way of power and prestige. And so they were being trampled and tossed aside. Then he says that they're guilty of disregarding worship as inconvenient. So in this next verse here, in verse 5, it's like we're eavesdropping on some Israelites as they're on their way to the temple to worship. Okay, We're kind of listening in. They're on their way to worship. That's what new moon, that's a, that's a festival, a feast. A, you know, we might have like our... like a a Thanksgiving worship service or a a Maundy Thursday service, that kind of thing. So the New Moon Festival was a worship feast. And then, of course, the Sabbath was the day of worship for them. So they're on the way to church. And what are they talking about? Oh, I can't wait to hear what the the rabbi's going to preach on today. Is that what they say? No. No. They're saying, I can't wait to get this over with. Let's get to church. Let's get it over with so we can get home and get on with the things that we really want to do. They wanted to get back to making money. And making money unjustly. Can you imagine going to church and going through the motions and putting on a good front and giving God all the lip service you can muster all the while looking at your watch. I know nobody here ever does this. Looking at your watch, tapping your foot, looking at where the preacher is in the notes. Can't wait to get out of here. And not just to beat the Methodist to lunch. No, they couldn't wait to get out of church so they could get back to treating the poor unjustly. They couldn't wait to get back to the greed and the unethical business practices and exploiting the needy. Here we see this unbreakable bond between how we view and treat God and how we view and treat other people. And we see that God has an attitude, He has a heart, that says, I care as much or more about how you treat other people than what you say and do when you come into a worship service. So what are the two greatest commandments? Love God and love people. 
Jesus said that all the law and the prophets hang on those two commands. Uh, 1 John 4.20 in the message paraphrase puts it this way. If anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he is a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. The Bible is abundantly clear that how we view and treat people is directly related to how we view and treat God. And the people of Israel saw both God and the needy around them as inconvenient. At best, they were there to be used for their own purposes. At worst, when they got in their way, they were to be tossed aside like day-old trash. They not only disregarded people as inhuman, but worship as inconvenient. And then God charges them for disregarding justice as inferior. Justice was inferior to profit. They'd rather line their pockets than maintain their integrity. And God calls them out for three specific acts of economic injustice. Using inaccurate scales, selling inferior product, and inflating their prices. Greedy. Arrogant, calloused. Now, it's easy for us to shake our head and to point at those people. It's a whole lot harder to look into the mirror of God's Word and examine ourselves. Our tendency to put pleasure and profit ahead of the needs of those around us. God takes these matters of injustice and, and treating people as less than human, and being insincere in our worship. He takes these very seriously. We can say we love God. We can say we love people. But do our actions demonstrate it? How might we be guilty of treating people as disposable? How might we be dehumanizing others? Well, anytime we write someone off, Anytime we turn a blind eye to the needs of others. Anytime we look at people only through the lens of the color of their skin or their economic standing or their political leanings or what they can do for us, we treat them as inhuman. As objects to be used, used up, and tossed aside. We see this happening every day on the news. We see it happening on Facebook. We as a culture can't seem to agree that every and all human lives matter. Whether they're black or white or blue, whether they're male or female, rich or poor, Republican or Democrat, and yes, even that unborn life in the womb waiting to take its first breath. And even that person that you might be willing, that death by COVID, you might be willing to write off because, well, they were old. Whenever we have that attitude, we are dehumanizing people. We need to put aside our labels. We need to stop passing the buck and laying blame and pointing fingers and raising fists and start reaching out with open hands ready to help, with open arms ready to embrace, with open mouths ready to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a world lost and going straight to hell. Amen? That's what we need to do. What about our worship? What about your worship? Are you just here to put on a show? 
Are you here for your reputation? Are you here just to kind of check this off your list and move on with your day and get back to what's really important to you? What about your business practices? Are you guilty of cutting corners? Giving less than your best effort? Shortchanging people to save a buck? Price gouging those in their time of need? Profiting off the backs of those who are hurting? These sins are so egregious. Look at verse 7. These sins are so egregious. God goes on to say, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. God says, I'm not going to forget these sins. They're so egregious. Look at verse 8. Will not the land tremble for this? And all who live in it mourn, the whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. These sins are so bad, the earth itself shudders with disgust. How can anyone do such things and think of themselves as the people of God? How can anyone treat others this way and think that somehow their worship will be acceptable to God? This is why ruin is coming. These are the reasons. Now, Amos goes on to then give the rundown of the ruin. He's going to give you a play-by-play of what this is going to look like. Let's look at verses 9 through 14. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make you wear sackcloth and shave your heads and will make that time like mourning as for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord. But they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. They who swear by the shame of Samaria. Here he's referring, he's referring to um, idols and these, these pagan shrines that were set up. They will swear by the shame of Samaria. Or say, as surely as your God lives, O Dan. Or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives. They will fall. Never to rise again. The coming judgment is described as a series of reversals. A reversal of God's blessing. A reversal of His covenant promises, of their deliverance in the exodus, of creation itself. Darkness instead of light. Funerals instead of festivals. Famine instead of feasts. Creation itself will mirror the chaos within the nation of Israel. What was joyful will be sad. What was clear will become confused. But the worst part is that Israel won't experience just a famine of Physical nourishment of bread and of water. No, it's a spiritual famine. The Word of God will be found nowhere. The people, you know, the people of Israel, we've talked about this before, they thought they were so religious. Oh, they were going to the temple, they were making their sacrifices, they had their priests. They thought God was on their side, but in reality they were just treating God like a spare tire, you know. God's in the trunk of my heart. When times get really bad, I'll whip him out so he can help me. Other than that, he's just going to live in the trunk. 
Don't people love to do that? We we do that. We do that as a country. When, When times are bad, we turn to God for prayer. We read the Bible. We go to church. We look for comfort. We look for guidance and direction. But for Israel, God's saying that help's not going to come. Nope. You're going to go to the trunk this time and you're going to find out there's no spare tire. Psalm 74, 9 says, We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. Y'all, I can't think of a punishment worse than this. To have the Word and the presence of God absent from my life? That is the worst of judgments. To have plenty of religion but no power, no presence, no light in the darkness, no harbor in the storm, no solid rock to stand on when when all the rest of the ground is sinking sand, no joy in times of despair. Rather, people are going to stagger around like they're drunk, They're going to stagger around like they have no direction. They're fainting from thirst for the Word of God. And then all those false gods, all those idols that you kind of were hedging your bets with, yeah, we're going to worship the Lord, but just to be safe, I'm going to have this little God over here and this little God over there. They're going to turn to those and find out they are just as false and empty as can be. No power. No words from them either. And those false gods in their shrines are now sharply contrasted with Amos' last vision. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord standing by the altar. Here's the final vision. No more word pictures. No more object lessons. Now Amos sees God himself standing at the altar, pronouncing the coming judgment. And God is going to say that no one will escape and no one can hide from the ruin that is coming. Let's look at, verses, let's look at the rest of, of, chapter, of verse 1 and verses uh, 2 through 4 as well. I saw the Lord standing at the altar and He said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the threshold shakes and bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. No one will get away. None will escape. Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves from the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. God promises here to dismantle their false religion from the top of the temple to the bottom, to the thresholds of the doors. If you remember back in Amos chapter 3, God talks about destroying the altars of Bethel. And that's what he's describing here, this man-made religion. Remember, this temple, this altar that he's standing by, this isn't the temple in Jerusalem. This is this false temple, this false altar that they put golden calves in. This is the false religion of the northern tribe of Israel. Remember Amaziah, that priest for hire we looked at last week? That's who he's saying, I'm going to destroy. I'm going to tear down this man-made religion. And anyone who survives this initial, this initial onslaught, God promises to hunt them down and destroy them as well. No one can escape. No one can hide from the depths of the grade to the highest of the heavens, from there in Israel to the farthest lands. God says, I will hunt 
you down. These verses, if you're familiar with Psalm 139, they're almost like a, like a backward, bizarro version of Psalm 139. Remember Psalm 139 where David talks about, if I go to the highest of the heavens, you are there. If I go to the depths of the sea, you are there. And, and when David writes about all that, it's, it's for comfort. It's comforting. It's strengthening to know that our omnipresent, omniscient God is present. He sees us no matter where we go. But here, it's not for comfort. It's not for good. Here, it's terrible. It's horrifying. Usually when God says that His eyes are fixed upon us, it's a good thing. In Psalm 33, 18, it says, But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him, on those whose hope is in His unfailing love. We even sing, His eyes on the sparrow, and I know He watches me. That's a good thing. But here, God says His eyes are fixed on His people like a hunter who's got His prey in His sight. Here, God's about to shoot that sparrow. And shoot, he does. He rains down terror on Israel such as the world has never seen. But even as God describes this ruin to come, he does so in a a way that reminds Israel of the kind of God that he has been and will continue to be for them. This isn't an attempt to get them to repent. That ship has sailed for Israel. Rather, God is reminding them that He is being completely consistent with His character. God's reminding them that even as He is turning against Israel, it is not He who has changed, it's them. He's not forsaking them, they are the ones who have walked away from Him. And so God next presents to them a timely reminder. And He begins by reminding them that He is the Creator. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, He who touches the earth and it melts. And all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile and sinks like the river of Egypt. He who builds His lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is His name. This is sort of that old, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. Anybody ever have a parent say that to you? Because He is the Creator and the sustainer of all the cosmos, He alone has the power and the right to end it. He can do that. The God who breathes out stars, that's the God that Israel has offended. He can touch the earth and it can melt. He can call forth the floodwaters as He did in the great flood. The instruments of ruin are at His command. He can take the order of creation and turn it into the chaos of judgment. He's the creator. Secondly, he is the deliverer. Look at verse 7. He reminds them, he says, are you not Israelites? The same to me as the Cushites, that's the Egyptians, declares the Lord. Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt? The Philistines from Caster? The Arameans from Kerr? You see, God reminds them of the exodus that not only did He create the universe and the world, He created them as a nation. They exist as a people only because He delivered them from slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land. But they've become arrogant in their position as the chosen ones. And we're the chosen people. We're God's special kingdom. And so they thought they could kind of ride into God's good graces on Abraham's coattails, basically, on Moses' coattails. Much like the self-righteous Pharisees who confronted Jesus. I want to read to you this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's so much 
like the attitude that Amos, that God is addressing right here in Amos chapter 9. Let's look at this. Um, Abraham is our father, they answered. So you can read back in that and see some of uh, what's going on here. But uh, I'm going to start right here. Abraham is our father, they answered. Listen to what Jesus says. If you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you're determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You're doing the things your father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and now I'm here. I've not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. And at the end of this exchange, you read on over there, they pick up rocks to stone Jesus. They're incensed. They're angry. But Jesus and God in Amos 9, they're saying that God is the Lord of all the earth. And here in Amos 9, he's saying, look, I direct the the history of all nations. No one people group can claim pride of place or set demands on God. God can judge whoever he wants to judge. No one is exempt from his discipline or his destruction. He doesn't look at your pedigree. He looks at your heart. What about us? There are so many people today that sit in churches. Their names are on the church roll. Maybe they've been through the baptistry. But their hearts don't belong to the Lord. And they think because their name's on a roll, they think because they they, they come to worship, mom and dad were Christians, whatever... They think that they can just sort of ride into heaven on somebody else's coattails. And they get prideful, and they get arrogant, but they don't have a relationship with God. They've never turned from their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ. Listen, you can know Jesus Christ as your deliverer today. Today, here in a few moments, you can turn your heart over to Him and say, you know what, I'm done trying to live my life in my own strength and wisdom. I'm done trying to be a good person. I'm done trying to, to impress God. I'm going to throw myself at His mercy and His grace and beg Him to forgive me and to save me and to make me a new creation in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be saved. And you can know Jesus today as your deliverer, and if you don't, then someday you will know him as your judge. And that's the third thing that God reminds them of here, that he is the judge. Look at verses 8 through 10. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve. And not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say, disaster will not overtake or meet us. Did you catch the glimmer of hope and mercy here? 
like, like Ben said, there, there, finally, finally, uh, John Asher Boutwell, when, the day he was baptized, after the service that day, he said, he said, Amos doesn't have anything good to say, does he? <laughs> You're observing. He listened. He was paying attention to that sermon. Finally, Amos has something good to say. Finally, we get to something positive and hopeful. God will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. Rather than outright annihilation, God says it's going to be more like sifting wheat. You know, when you sift wheat, you're separating the good from the bad. The the good kernels of grain will fall through into the basket to be collected and the little bits of dirt and rock and pebble and things like that that get picked up in the harvesting, that's left in the sieve and it will be thrown out. God is telling them that as a just judge, He's not going to punish the righteous with the wicked. Those who truly worship Him and treat others with justice, He will preserve them as a remnant. But the self-confident sinners, those who say, surely disaster is not going to overtake us, they'll be punished. So some questions for us to consider. When God comes to judge, where will I stand? Where will you stand when God comes to judge? Ask yourself, have I fooled myself into thinking I'm among the faithful when I'm not? Am I just going through the motions? Or am I sincere in my faith? Have I turned to God as my deliverer and rested on His amazing grace? Or in self-confidence have I been trying to impress or manipulate God? Those are the questions that we must each ask and be certain that we know the answers. God is the creator. He's our deliverer. He's the ultimate judge. But here at the end of Amos, He reveals to us that ruin and punishment and judgment are not the final words. Restoration is the final word. And it isn't, isn't that the name of the sermon series? It's not the roar to ruin. It's not the roar to judgment. I know it's felt that way. It's the roar to restore. And that's the final thing God says here in Amos 9, 11 through 15. God promises eternal restoration. Let's look at these last verses. In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Just as God would destroy the false house of worship that that King Jeroboam built, God promises to restore the true house of David. God would someday rebuild David's tent. Remember, David was king of a united Israel, centered in Jerusalem. So this reference to David's tent is an assurance of a bright future when God would reunite the kingdoms of Israel and Judah into one people again. God says, I'm not going to forsake my promise to David. I will not let his dynasty collapse. The tent may have been ruined for a while, but he's going to restore it. And someday God will reestablish the throne of David. 
and God's people will return to a restored, repaired, and rebuilt kingdom where the son of David reigns forever. And you know, and eventually the Jews did return from exile to Jerusalem. And they did rebuild the city and the temple. And they established the, the, the priestly system. And the nation was restored. But you know what? No son of David would sit on Israel's throne again. At least not yet. We believe that Jesus Christ is that long-awaited King of Kings, the Son of David, the Messiah. He has fulfilled and will fulfill every Old Testament prophecy concerning Him. And someday He will rule over a restored Israel and Edom. Notice it says, and Edom. Edom, if you remember, were the descendants of Esau. So he's saying, this, this goes back not just to the promise to David, but to the promise to Abraham, that both the children of, of Jacob and Esau, as inheritors of that promise, will be reunited and restored. And not just that. Remember that promise to Abraham. He said, I will bless you, and through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. And all people from all tongues and tribes who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He will rule all the nations, so called by His name. God gives Amos and us this vivid description of what this future restoration will look like. He says crops will be so abundant, there won't be enough time between harvesting and the time to plant to get more planted. It's just going just to keep coming. The abundant crop is going to be mind-blowing. The, the wine will literally drip from the trees and the mountains and the hills. You won't even have to harvest or squeeze a grape. It, now, does that make any sense? No. Is that maybe a bit of an exaggeration? Probably. It sounds impossible. But it's God's way of saying that the blessings of the new heaven and the new earth are so fantastic, words don't describe it. Remember earlier when he said the judgment was going to be so bad people would be silent and speechless? That This is the opposite of that. The restoration will be so amazing. You, you can't find the words to explain it. I mean, all we've ever known is a broken and cursed world, broken and cursed by sin, right? All we know is you have to work hard. Jay, you have to work hard out there in that garden to get those, get those plants to grow and that, that vegetables, right? You have to work hard for that. We can't conceive of how amazing the new heavens and new earth will be. If we could, it would break our brains. That's what he's describing here. Revelation describes a world in which there is no sorrow, no suffering, no separation. Jesus will wipe every tear from our eyes. All of our grief will turn into joy, weeping into laughter, sadness into dancing. God's heart has always been one of restoration. The purposes of Amos's prophecy ultimately is restoration. The story of Scripture from beginning to end is one of restoration. The story begins in a garden with God walking and talking with people and it ends in a city in the New Jerusalem where it describes it like a garden. There will be the river of life flowing from the throne of God, the tree of life on both banks of the river. The leaves of, those, of that tree will bring healing to the nations. God will be our light and we will be in His presence for all of eternity. Amen? And we will feast together forever as if we're at a wedding party. No famine. No famine from the Word of God. No famine from the presence of God. Will you be around that table? Do you know that you've received the promise of eternal life? You can know that right now, today.
It's not too late for you. This was too late for Israel at this moment in time. But I've got good news. It's not too late for you. Jesus stands ready to receive you today if you will turn to Him in faith and in trust. I pray you would come and do that today. I pray if you're watching online or listening on the radio, you'd reach out to us and let us know that you've made that decision. That you've prayed and you've confessed your sins and you've given your heart to Jesus Christ. Please let us know that you've done that. Believers, are you hungering and thirsting for the Word of God? Are you hungering and thirsting for the presence of God? You know, maybe you feel like you've been in a spiritual famine. Maybe you feel like God has been distant. I invite you this morning to come and lay your burdens at this altar. Lay your burdens down and open your eyes to see, your ears to hear, your heart to receive what it is God wants to say to you today. The time is right. Do not delay. Let's be obedient to God's call. Would you stand and pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this word of warning and this word of promise. Father, we thank you for the challenges that you've presented to us over these past couple of months. Lord, you've convicted us. You've called us out on some things. And I pray that we would be receptive to that, to your discipline, to your instruction. If there's anyone here today or, or listening to us from afar, Lord, that needs to put their faith and trust in you, I pray they would do it today. God, that they would set their pride aside and they would come in humility and throw themselves at the mercy of Christ. And I pray, God, you would help all of us as believers, as disciples, to hunger and thirst for you, to seek your face, to walk in your ways, to be people of justice, to be people of love, to be people who are burdened for the lost around us and will share the gospel with those that you've put in our path. I pray we would be obedient to your call today. In the name of Christ, amen.